Well, it's great to be with you today at Ingleburn. It's a great pleasure to be able to share God's Word. And this morning, uh, today, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 to 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. And it's entitled, Stand Firm in Time of Uncertainty. Uh, four years ago, there was a British study about looking at the connection between uncertainty and stress. And what they did, they got a number of participants and each were given a fairly significant electric shock. And they were told before they had the shock that they either they had a 0%, 100% or a 50% chance of receiving a shock. Well, the study merely confirmed what would be innately obvious to most of us the more significant the outcome, the more the greater the stress. So the 0% and 100%, whether they didn't get a a shock or knew they'd 100% get a shock, were not as stressed as those who had a 50-50 chance of receiving a shock. Uh, As I've thought about how we live in the world, it's clear to me that God has sort of given to us innate desire both to know where we're going and also how long will it take to get there? If you had kids on a journey with you in a car, you know how quickly it t- doesn't take long for them to say, when are we going to get there? Well, into this sort of context comes a tiny, tiny little virus, measuring of all of 100 nanometers, virtually nothing. And it's sort of thrown into uh, up in the air our capacity to manage our world. Uh, our level of risk that we thought we could manage and t- uh, sort of remove, well, that's evaporated. And suddenly the unknowns of life easily overwhelm. So into that context, I read this passage before us today. And what came to mind in these worlds of shifting sand and uncertainty and stress and risk is the certainty that the Apostle Paul writes about In chapter 15, in verse 1, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. There's something immovable, something you've stood upon. And then at the bookend of the chapter, in verse 58, where we'll come to a little bit at the end, uh, Paul writes, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Now, this idea of standing firm is also speaking about something immovable, uh, not shifting, not moving around. And, of course, that gives a sense of certainty. So in times of uncertainty, here's our place of certainty. But, of course, it presupposes we understand what we need to stand firm on or stand firm in. This chapter very clearly says that we stand firm in the gospel. This is what we need to find. The gospel is our point of security and certainty. In the opening verses of this chapter, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel. He wants us to hold firmly to this word of gospel. And in verse 3, he says, of holding on to the gospel is something of first importance. This gospel is the means by which we have this certainty, and it's what holds Paul's story together. The Gospels is what saves people from lostness 
and death and gives both life and direction and purpose. The gospel sustains and grows Christians in the walk of discipleship and the gospel ushers in glory so that we will finally receive a resurrected body in the new heavens and new earth. It's about the fullness and completeness of salvation. It mightn't seem obvious, but in our world today, there's all sorts of disputed understandings of what salvation we are meant to pursue. There's a secular form of salvation, which is looking at either political salvation or social salvation, environmental salvation, economic salvation or health salvation. Uh, by contrast, gospel salvation is the most comprehensive certain and eternal salvation on offer in the world. I read a book by a philosopher, an atheist philosopher from France called Luc Ferry. Uh, it doesn't really matter, but it was, he talked at the conclusion of his book and looking at all the different ways the world operates with this observation about Christianity. He said, amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. So nothing can compete with Christianity, he concludes, if it were true. He doesn't believe it's true, but he said, if it was true, there's a salvation that is unbelievable. And so I want to look uh, today at this gospel, which we can take our stand on, the gospel which is of first importance for us. So I want to start on verse 3. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as first importance, and this idea of first importance would capture our hearts and minds. The gospel should be the defining thing of what it means to be a Christian group, a church. What a defining thing of what it means to be a Christian. It's not the only thing, but the central defining thing. Very easy in church life for all other matters to sort of dominate and come across, whether it be our relationships, the life of community, whether it's interest in family or politics or social justice. And they all have their place, I'm not diminishing that. But what Paul wants to make sure is that we maintain what is of first importance with the gospel, that we by nature are simply gospel people. At that point, we need to ask, well, what does come to your mind as you hear the word gospel? It's used regularly in Christian circles, and um, I think sometimes it can be a little bit ill-defined. It can be used in other places, but it's a Christian word on the whole. And the very familiarity of the word can lead to a certain neglect. So look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand by this gospel You are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So just notice the different things that are mentioned there. Uh, First of all, you need to remind. So the gospel can be sidelined somehow. I need to be recalled. So say, I heard it last week. I need to be reminded of this week. I need to be reminded of next week. Gospel is something that's passed on. Uh, It's received. It's something that you receive personally. And all of us are byproducts of the reception of previous generations, wherever that may be. As you hear today this gospel message, 
It comes because previous people have received it and passed it on. The gospel saves. It converts people at the beginning and sustains people all the way through the end. And there's a tenacity to this gospel work in our lives. We hold firmly to it. You cling to it with all that you have, as if your very life depends upon it. And this all culminates in the idea of something of first importance. So all I want to do for a remainder of our time is just look at this gospel. Maybe no more than reminding you what you know, but since Paul says we need to be reminded of it, it will do us all a lot of good. If we want to understand how to stand firm at this time. So the uh, areas we want to look at, the gospel one is about Christ. Two, the gospel has a purpose. Three, the gospel is for today. And four, the gospel is for everyone. I'll just go through those briefly and conclude our time below the idea of standing firm. So the first simple thing to say is that gospel is about Christ. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the gospel. No Jesus, no gospel. Take Jesus out, and I don't know what you've got left, but you haven't got biblical Christianity, you haven't got the gospel. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. For what I received to pass on to you is first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So what do we find out about Christ in regards to the gospel? First, that he died, then he was buried, and thirdly, he was raised on the third day. Uh, what's not mentioned here, of course, is Jesus' birth and life. Not to say they're unimportant, but they're the context and means by which we understand him to be the Christ, the ruler, the Messiah, the world king, the one promised by God who would come and lead the world. But then the Christ that is established, well, he died. Unexpectedly, but according to the purpose of God, the Christ died. And he was buried, truly dead, in a tomb, buried dead. And then raised on the third day with all that comes with flesh raised to life. And so this is the Christ that saves. It's the only Christ that saves. The one who lived, the one who died, that was buried and raised again. Second of all, the gospel has a purpose. Uh, I uh, like uh, comedians, and very many years ago, there was a very famous English comedian called Spike Milligan. If you haven't heard of him, look him up later on. A uh, very funny guy, uh, dead for a number of years. But he famously said, and I remember this very distinctly, I don't know why Jesus died for me. I never asked him to. Which, of course, the point. None of us actually asked him to die for us. But he did die with the purpose of us. He says that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Uh, this is so familiar, we need to remind ourselves of that. Every Easter, we go through the normal means of remembering Jesus' death and resurrection again on this Easter Sunday. Those facts become firmly established in our mind. He was a, I died on the cross and rose again. 
uh, when I was growing up in a nominally going Christian household, I might have reached my teenage years, and I was trying to feel the the weight of this Easter event, and I sort of sort of recalled the facts of Jesus' death, and it was sort of like, well, why, if we just have to remember he's dying, what's the significance of it? But of course, it took me a while uh, to connect the purpose of his dying, and I didn't quite get that. It wasn't just the mere facts of his death, it was with a purpose. His death, unlike every other death of human history, had the purpose of our sins, and the grasp the significance of our sins change and transforms our understanding who this Christ is and what he's accomplished. Our sins. We don't use the word a lot, but we need to recapture the significance of it. Uh, you and I are very much aware that we live in a broken, frail, falling apart world. It's messed up and we experience that personally. And I'm pretty sure each of you could tell stories of things that have impacted your life. If not, you only have to look at the news or you feed on your phones to realise our world is a very sad place often. And we always hope for much better, but seemingly it comes up and grasps us and the failures and the frailty keeps coming down upon us and we get disappointed. I talked previously about different salvations that work in the world. There's a secular form of salvation that goes like this. Let's fix up the system. Let's fix up all the ways the world's operating and we can find a better way to fix up people and then they can recover and live a better life. And I said, well, yes, I always want to try and improve things in the world. There's no way I want to diminish that. But the coronavirus actually reminded me of what were at play here. When the first restrictions started uh, for our lives in this period of time, uh, it was stated the restrictions are there to try and save lives. Well, really? Uh, it's a bit tasteless, but I'll put it this way. In fact, all the restrictions... Are d- <laughs> Excuse me. All the restrictions are doing are delaying death. You can't save lives, you can delay death because what's the one consistent statistic that's still the same before the coronavirus and after the coronavirus is the intractable issue of death. And the intractable issue of death is related to the intractable problem of sin. And you can't disconnect sin and death. So biblically, sin is much more than just simply brokenness of people. There's a far more systemic big problem we all face. Sin is an offence against God himself. We live alienated from the true and living God who created the world, sustains the world, and we made for him. And we all face God as judge with eternity before us with a consequence of hell if we're not repaired in that relationship. Without forgiveness of sins, we have nothing. You can you can do whatever you like in the world. You can accomplish the greatest things in the world. You can accumulate the resources you have all around you to give you the illusion that you can control the world, that the world's not going to impact you. And it's interesting, the larger, the more money we have, the more we try and cut ourselves off from the world so that we feel secure. But you can do all that. But without the forgiveness of sins, you still have nothing. <clears throat> 
And sin is not just out there, it is in us. But of course, the whole biblical story is that we're not left destitute in our sins. God, in his graciousness and kindness and mercy, has come in Christ and saves us from our sins. Christ died for our sins. Before we're even aware of the seriousness, the dire nature of our predicament, the news comes, Christ died for our sins. And so you can have all sorts of achievements in life, and all of us will finish with some epitaph and other about summing up for us, and I'm praying to God that we will do things with our family and things like that. But what's the most significant epitaph? I want to give you what's on the gravestone of a man called John Newton, the amazing grace John Newton. Lots of things could have been written about John Newton, but this is the words he composed himself that still on his gravestone today. It reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel in Libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ preserved, restored, Pardon appointed, preached the faith he had long laboured destroyed to destroy. What's the most significant thing at the end that John Newton wanted to know you to know about him? Restored and pardoned, forgiven. And that's the same for all of us. And I pray deeply this morning you will know that the forgiveness is found in Jesus. So in that Christ died for our sins, we're no longer chained down, we are free. We're not dead, we're given life. We're not bound for hell, we're bound for heaven. And we have a purpose and direction of life. And I want that message to continue to percolate down. Remind ourselves of that. Restore that deeply in our hearts and minds and find the freedom that's there. The gospel has a purpose. Next thing, the gospel is for today. There's a historical validity to the gospel message, especially the resurrection. We'll come to that next week. But the resurrection also shows the power of the gospel to change lives. I'll just read uh, verses 4, 5 through 8 about how what happened after Jesus rose. Uh, Paul writes in verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, that's Paul, also as to one abnormally born. The gospel rests on the, rests on the Jesus crucified, dead and buried and came to life and never to die again. But I want to notice the change that occurs in people when this is received. And just use two examples in this little snippet here. One of Peter. Before Jesus died, Peter disowned him. That man across there? Never knew him. Have nothing to do with him. I don't want anything to do with him. And so he, he sort of disowned the Lord he had followed. And then you know the story. He was restored after the resurrection. And then the resurrection starts to take hold of him by the power of the Spirit and he becomes this changed man who leads the Christian movement in that early years standing up in front of thousands. I'm not saying that's going to be the case for us, but just knows the pattern, changed. Paul, we're told he was one abnormally born. He also, resurrected Lord, came to him. You know the story of Paul trying to destroy the church, putting Christians in jail, doing his best to overturn things. 
resurrected the Lord came to him and powerfully changed his life totally. And that's what happens to Christians over the millennia. Whenever the gospel comes, it comes with power. It doesn't leave us unchanged. And the testimony always is the power of the gospel is to make us different people. We are both the same but different. We've got a different life because we're free, we're forgiven, we've got a purpose and a direction. And so the gospel is not just something we know resides in some sort of history book. The gospel is not just sort of theological facts that we can state, as important that may be. It comes to us personally. We receive it deeply and it keeps us going. We're swept up in God's ways and what he's doing and we're sustained as those who belong to a family and it matters. Here is we're part of something that's going to last through to eternity. The testimony of all those who have stuck, stuck with the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, is they've been sustained all the way through to the very end. And I say again and again, God never fails. Oh, they might say, sometimes I feel like I'm clinging on by the fingertail, fingertips, just, just barely hanging on, but they'll look back and see even when they're clinging on to their, by the fingertips, God's still got them in an unbreakable grip. So we need to be reminded of this and be energized by it and transformed by it because the gospel is also personal. And I want to say I've been going as a Christian for many years and I've been a bishop for a while. I want to say that I'm still being changed and transformed by that same gospel. Just reflecting over the last 10 years as a bishop, what's changed for me? I've learned to be more patient. Patient in God's purposes. I can rely upon God to be at work and I don't feel like I have to be responsible. It seems like a small thing, but I've had to learn that. And I've learned that I can do that and still have an urgency on the task. So I've learned a patient urgency or urgent patience. And that's been a transformative thing in my life as that has been percolated through the way I operate. Uh, next point, the gospel for everyone. Um, <clears throat> the gospel transforms people but clearly does not transform everyone. Uh, it must be heard and received. The gospel is universally available, individually received. Universally available, individually received. And so as we look around Campbelltown, as I drove here today, what is it about these people of this area that they need most of all? Well, the answer would be the gospel. It's good news to be heard. It's good news to be received. It's good news that we will hold to and contend for because we believe it matters eternally. And so as a church here, we will do what we can to love our neighbours. We will live quiet, peaceful lives, looking to do good to all people as we are able, especially the household of God. But what first and foremost we must still always be is gospel people. Rightly, our prayerful intent is that the people of this area take hold of the gospel. Why do we sustain our churches? With that heart that is mission-focused will be before us always. So the gospel is for everyone today. But lastly, I want to conclude with why then do we need to make sure we stand firm in this gospel. That gospel characteristic defines who we are. Why we must stand firm. Well, the truth is the gospel will ultimately be triumphant, but in this world 
the gospel is both consistently contested and opposed. It's never just simple, straightforward, moving forward. The glorious reign of our great Jesus, Lord and Saviour, is challenged continuously. And it often seems, the Christian movement seems very fragile. Uh, Maybe we don't have it quite in Australia, but Christians are suffering around the world. Churches are persecuted. Uh, And it's extraordinary, the power of the gospel seems to keep people going in the midst of all this adversity and difficulty that's surrounding us. And so I want to say, just reflect this inherent contradiction of what I've just said. The gospel is the most important thing of first importance for every person around us. And we're prayerfully asking God by his spirit through our work that people come to know and love to serve the Lord. But honestly, churches are often disregarded. What we do is misunderstood. It's sidelined, it's attacked, it's marginalized. And that's why we conclude in verse 58 with the words, stand firm. We'll come to this again next week. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor on the Lord is not in vain. Let nothing move you. Let nothing move us. We give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. We labor in the Lord. These words of working and labor, it's a language of uh, out in the field where you're working so hard the sweat is coming off your brow and running down your nose. That sort of effort's expected. It's not just of those who are paid to do the work. It's actually caught up for all people who know the Lord Jesus Christ. This work is for all of us, irrespective whether you are navigating life with teenagers or young kids or whether you're confined to home because of illness or working, you're retired, not sure how to work through the retirement years or working long hours or whether you're anxious, whether you're distracted. This work of the gospel advancing in people's lives is the defining element of what we're engaged with. Here is the thing we stand firm, the glorious outworking of that gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my brothers and sisters, do the work of the Lord, labor in the Lord, work hard. We're all in this together, collectively and individually. This is our calling, that we be gospel people. And the gospel people understand who Christ is, understand the significance of his death, understand the significance of resurrection, and received it and has powerfully transformed them and give our lives to that. I pray that is your story, and together we might be involved in this great work that God has called us to. I pray. Heavenly Father, do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the salvation we do know is ours in him. Thank you, for Father, today that we are those whose sins are forgiven. And we pray, Lord, if we're not sure of that, we will do what we can today to follow through with that, and to know who Christ is, the significance of death for us. But with all that in mind, Father, may we stand firm, united together in the work that you've called us to, whatever our circumstances. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.